The sounds you're hearing here are rockets fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel. Some people appear to be cheering during the terror attack. On Saturday, in the early morning hours of October 7th, Hamas terrorists fired thousands of rockets into Israel and stormed the security fence. They killed hundreds in nearby villages and at a music festival and abducted a large number of people. At the time of recording, it's estimated they took 150 hostages, many of them civilians. It's the deadliest attack since the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. It's been referred to as Israel's 9-11. Israel retaliated with airstrikes and ordered a, quote, complete siege on the Gaza Strip. On Sunday, Israel formally declared war. At the time of recording, Israel's military, the IDF, said more than 1,200 people had been killed in the attacks so far. More than 1,000 people were killed in the Gaza Strip, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Welcome to a special episode of DW's World in Progress. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Allow me to start on a personal note, and we'll get to the analysis part just a little later. Just last month, at the beginning of September, I went to Israel with about 20 other journalists to learn more about the geopolitical security situation. We went up close to the Golan Heights in the north, to Ramallah in the Palestinian territories, and to the border with Gaza in the south. That's where I met Tal Shamir, a social psychologist and community coordinator for the Eshkol Regional Council just next to Gaza. He was showing us around there, providing background in a complicated area. He and his family live just a couple of kilometers away from the Gaza Strip. I caught up with him over the phone. Me and my family right now, we are safe uh, after long 24 hours of uh, war. We've been in the in lockdown in our safe room inside our house for about uh, 20 hours. The army uh, took us with uh, armored vehicles and uh, extracted us to safe zone, uh, something like uh, 40 kilometers to the east. And we are now right here, all of our community. On the day of the surprise attack by terror group Hamas on that Saturday, can you walk us through that day? We woke up in 6.25 uh, in the morning from multiply bombs and rockets that we never heard. This uh, mountain, huge, huge amount of uh, explosion, nonstop, and uh, there was the alarm going on. We went inside our uh, safe room with our kids. We locked ourselves. First thing we, we did is to understand where all the family is, because my in-laws live in Ena Shlosha, which is on the border. Fortunately, uh, two days before they went out for a trip to Europe, so they are safe. And uh, my son was in a, in another place, about a kilometer from the from uh, the border, in another kibbutz with his friends. He stayed there overnight. My oldest son, and they were under terrorist attack. They were terrorists inside their kibbutz, torching down houses, executing uh, children and women and men, and uh, looting whatever they can can and if what they didn't can. Well, they didn't loot, they just burned down. 
my daughter got messages from a friend calling for help, yelling, call the police, call the, the army. They are in my house. They're trying to break into my uh, safe room. Please help me. And we got a lot of messages like that. And we, uh, hour after hour, we understood that all of us are under this kind of uh, severe attack. We started to understand that a lot of our friends are either killed or kidnapped to Gaza. And uh, we found out uh, that also from our village, three people are missing. Nobody could tell what's going on because the army was still fighting a lot of terrorists. And we went out under fire to the where the last time we, we saw that uh, they called from. The last call from them was in 6.30, and it was from the junction that leads to our village. And we took uh, guns. Uh, we don't have much. And we went over there in order to uh, to understand if they are alive. And uh, we saw an horrible sight of uh, seven, seven uh, people slaughtered. And among them... Unfortunately, these uh, three people that uh, there was a young woman, 22 years old, another friend of mine, which is like uh, 55 years old, and another young man, uh, 32 uh, years old. We kept on everything like that. We started to understand the situation and we tried to manage talking with all of our community to understand who is in the house and to tell them to stay there and to stay safe until the army will tell us we can go out or soldiers will come to residence. The terrorists tried to breach into our uh, village and uh, we were only four people with uh, guns, but we uh, fought them back and they went to another place. Unfortunately, uh, over there they uh, massacred people, but... Uh, then uh, other team took them down. And uh, like that, it went on and on, and shooting with my kids, three of them, they, they were in, in, a, in a great fear, crying and fear for, for their friends. How old are your kids and, uh, now? Uh, the, older, the oldest one is 20 years old, and then I have one 17 and a half, and another one is 14, and another young one is about uh, nine years old, nine and a half. And uh, two two boys, two girls, and they were terrified. All the roads were roaming with terrorists, and we couldn't go out. We were not allowed to go out. We waited until uh, 12 at night, like 24 hours, uh, until the army went uh, inside our, our village, and they uh, managed to open a kind of uh, route to go out. They have extracted us, and then we went on, and uh, I brought my kids to this place, and I went back to extract my son from uh, this kibbutz that was under a ter- terrorist attack, and I managed to extract him about in a, two in, in the morning. I took him to the family, and uh, I was uh, mobilized. I was also the army called me to come and uh, help, so I just uh, grabbed my uh, uniform and I went to do my duty. 
and uh, we started uh, this kind of uh, war. And it's a war. Israel has mobilized about 300,000 reservists so far. Tal Shamir is one of them. A month ago, when he took us up close to the border with Gaza, he introduced us to his friend Ophir Liebstein, the president of the regional council in Shar Hanagev, someone who was actively working on making life better for people in Gaza. He was killed on Saturday. Ophir was, is, is, he lives in a place called Kfaraza. Kfaraza, it's a kibbutz which uh, lies uh, two kilometers, no, it's a kilometer from the border with Gaza city and they uh, they were attacked and uh, with dozens of uh, terrorists Hamas terrorists and uh, they got shot at and Ophir was uh, he got a phone call from his uh, mother-in-law which is uh, 85 years old and she said there are terrorists coming to my house please come and help me and he went out with his son and his nephew, and uh, he went out to extract his uh, mother-in-law, and the terrorist uh, shot him in the head. They severely wounded his son. His nephew was killed also on spot. And that's uh, that's Ophir, my one of my best friends, uh, one of the optimists, and love, uh, full of love person. A man of of uh, of belief, a man of a man of hope, a man that wanted wanted uh, people of Gaza and people of uh, Shanegev live together. And he was assassinated. Tal Shamir then has to go, and we pick up our conversation hours later when he's driving in his car. He's on his way to an army base. Ophir Lipstein was a man of peace. Ophir Lipstein was a man of. Um, of uh, hope. He wanted this place to prosper. He wanted not only his people to prosper, he understood and he said that, that if my neighbor as Gaza won't be able to drink clean water, to have enough electricity, to have enough economy, I cannot stay here safe. So I will be do, I'll do everything they will have good economy, their sufficient um, electricity, and whatever they need, and what they've got now. Ophir's kibbutz. It was a massacre over there. They tore all the houses over there. It looks like a battlefield. It looks like Kherson in Ukraine. It's awful. We have like 10 kibbutzim that were burned almost to the ground. We're talking about one of them, one of the kibbutzim that I, as I see, 60% of the kibbutz was slaughtered or taken in captive. A community of 600 people, and we're talking about less than 200 people stayed alive. And we're not talking about soldiers or people with guns. We're talking about parents. We're talking about uh, old people. 70, 80, 90 years old. We're talking about babies, kids, young people, partying. Tal Shamir speaking to me from Israel. After a short break, we get some insights from a Chatham House analyst how Hamas was able to launch such a surprise attack and catch everyone off guard. 
All over the world, people are in shock over the terrorist attack on Israel. How could Hamas terrorists launch such a surprise attack? Thousands upon thousands of rockets, terrorists paragliding into Israel to open fire on residents and people at a nearby festival. There was reportedly even a mock Israeli settlement in Gaza used for practice. How did all of that go unnoticed? How is that possible with Israel's advanced tech? I turn to Yossi Merkelberg, a professor of international relations and associate fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at the Independent Policy Institute Chatham House, based in London. It seems that it was almost impossible for Israeli watching from every direction, uh, Gaza and, and Hamas particularly, that they won't realize that they are training uh, paragliders and, and, and people coming from the sea and, and definitely on the ground, and even if they, as they start marching towards Israel. But again, it's not only an operational uh, failure of having or not having the information, or whether Hamas misled Israel by apolitically uh, sending different messages to its real intention, or, or, or also misinforming the, who they thought were Israeli informers, but it's the way that Israel perceived Hamas' lack of interest in, in military confrontation anymore, but only govern Gaza is probably a large part of it. There are some, some of what we see information come from Egypt, says that Egypt actually warned Israel against such, such an attack. With intelligence, it's not only about the information, whether you decide to believe this information or not, how you interpret this, this information, and as much as I'm sure the, uh, the fingers will be pointed at the military intelligence and the Shabak, the politicians should take the lion's share of the responsibility for not asking the right question, for creating the framework in which they see Hamas in the way they see it, including facilitated it with money and, and fuel. And, and above all, the... the the illusion that you can keep two million people uh, blockaded and nothing going to happen. This exactly, this, this empowers the most extreme elements in society. Of course, you know, the, the, what Hamas did should, should be condemned outright. But for people, it's always to look at, at conflict and think, what are the root causes? What empowers the moderate, the people that want to live in peace and coexistence? And what empowers people that have that resort to violence, resort to extremism. The Gaza Strip is tiny, so I'm just having a hard time understanding how they could amass thousands upon thousands of rockets, because, you know, space is limited. Wouldn't you have seen that through surveillance? The surveillance is there. The, the, some of the most uh, sophisticated, most sophisticated equipment is there, and the, and the fences, it's, it's not just a fence. It's a highly sophisticated electronic fence and blocking the, the tunnels. The fact that there were not enough troops there is because the working assumption was that Hamas was not interested in this point in military confrontation. Because if you don't base your analysis, you don't process your actions on, on, on what you think the intentions are on the other side. We know that there are many rockets there because they keep firing rockets and every time that there is a military confrontation, rockets, it's not the rocket, rockets are, on this occasion, rockets are the secondary. It's the ground invasion, it's the seas, the gliders, the ability, to, I'm also, I look at information that comes. 
the IDF says that uh, already 1,500 bodies of Hamas militants. So just think how many actually managed to infiltrate inside Israel. This is not, how didn't they detect it? It's the same question that, you know, we all will ask because, the, the, again, we all assume that the way that those, this is a fence that, uh, that billions of shekels were invested in it. Uh, you have uh, soldiers trained in watching with the most sophisticated equipment to watch every move in Gaza, and it failed. So on the face of it, it should not have. That's what, why we need to investigate it. Why would Hamas attack now? Well, I, I, we need to understand that they plan it for a long time. This is according, just, it's not just a decision to launch rockets or a small, a small group of militants crosses the border. When you have something on this scale, it means that they planned it at least a year. So it means that they looked for, for a moment of, of doing that. I think we need to look always the root causes. The root causes is, 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 is unresolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Within it, there are triggers. And triggers are the relations within the Palestinian's political system. You know, the impasse in and, and having no hope of ending the blockade. Some would argue that also the Palestinians feel neglected by the international community. All what they hear is about how Israel is improving relations with every, everyone. And they say, you know, let's try to, to, to stop it. In my mind, actually, they will achieve probably exactly the opposite. They will just demarginalize themselves. And one of the reasons for that, and again, this is something I can't be 100% sure, but the more I think about it, the more I speak to people, I believe this is the case, is they overachieved, so to speak. They probably wanted to, to, to come out with, with way, way more limited objectives. Probably capture a few soldiers that they can then... Oh, sorry. That's my life right now. You were saying that they were overachieving? They... I believe so. It's, it, again, I'm writing an article right now. This is the, what, what are the options? Uh, one, of, one, of, uh, one of the options is that's what they wanted. So then what did they start to do? Start an Armageddon in, in, in the region. I always think Israel will react when... They go into a rave party and kill 260 youngsters or enter or kidnap three, four years old. I'm not saying Hamas is always an irrational actor, but even a semi-rational actor won't enter into this vis-a-vis such a, such a strong military power. And uh, even if there, it's a setback, Israel will still respond now with massive retaliation. So it's hard for me to see that this was the aim on this scale. So they wanted probably something on a much smaller scale that shows that they can still, they can go, they cross the border, they can kidnap some soldiers, they then negotiate for, for their own prisoners. Then they, they, can, they can kill soldiers. So break this sense of invincibility that, you know, Israel is strong enough militarily, diplomatically is doing better and better. And no one actually looks, looks at the Palestinian issue. And as far as the international community, if another 20, 30 years, a dozen people who live in these conditions, no one really cares. That's, that's their perception of the situation. There is an element of, 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 of truth. But if, obviously right now, if, this is what if that's what they thought, they, they wrote their death warrant from the very beginning. So I think with a more limited operation, they could have, you know, go back and have some psychological 
victory. They could have some also some uh, bargaining chip to release uh, their prisoners. Right now, Israel is amassing a huge amount of troops on the border, and I won't be surprised in any minute they will cross into Gaza. But in the meantime, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm dreading the next few days and what will be the retaliation, and if actually there is a capacity in Israel to think about the day after the war. Now, um, Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu told residents in Gaza to leave uh, as they will retaliate against uh, Hamas terrorists. But but realistically, where should the residents, the innocent families go? I mean, two million people live in that tiny strip. There's not much space. How how to avoid the killing of innocent people now? Even in Netanyahu's kind of the illogical things that he says for a long time right now, this is one of the things that not, not only hypocritical, it makes no sense what's, whatsoever. They're blockaded. They're nowhere to go. Uh, there is a possibility that Egypt would open. You know, Israel is not going to open the border, so they won't accept them. Egypt, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But then you create again a refugee, a refugee uh, issue inside inside Egypt. Are then they're going to Europe? I don't think many European countries are uh, open. You know, receiving them with open arms. So this is. The, I, I think this is terrible, terrible statement by by, by Netanyahu. They have nowhere to go, and already many of them are looking for refuge in UNRWA's uh, schools and other installations, and they're dreading what's going to happen next. And again, as much as you know, I think most of us understand the anger in Israel right now, understand the, 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 the wish to uh, hit Hamas and, and hit Hamas uh, badly, that it won't be able to do something like that ever again. It, again, it won't justify killing civilians in Gaza. And and worse than that, it won't help Israel to coexist in the long term if they keep kill civilians and again uh, destroy infrastructure that will make the situation in Gaza even worse. I think they need to really plan what's, it, what's the strategy of this operation, what they want to achieve, how they minimize damage or, or killing of civilians, damage to, to what is already poor infrastructure, but immediately come with a plan that will alleviate the misery of Gaza. Obviously, uh, I'm far from being hopeful that this is the kind of discussions that take place right now in the Israeli cabinet. Is there any chance at peace again? <laughs> you asked me to be a prophet, not an analyst. Uh, first of all, I think there will be peace one day. It's just it's in all other wars, and for us speaking here in Europe, we know that even after the bloodiest of wars come eventually peace. And I think Israel and, Israel and Palestinians are not different. The question is only how much more bloodshed will be spilled before people will come to their senses. And that's I don't have an answer. If you ask me, there is a way to reach peace? Yes. If there is, if there is a will among many people to reach peace, definitely. How long it will take and whether those who can facilitate for that are ready to invest their energy and political capital in that, so far we haven't seen that. But maybe, just maybe, if there is any silver lining, and I'm, I'm stretching it here, if there is any, any, any silver lining that people will wake up and understand, if there is no peace, that's, what, that, that's how it ends. Not to, again, not to justify what's happening, but if people want to prevent, avoid future 
future atrocities, they need to go and sit and negotiate peace, which will be less than, than, than ideal, but way better than what we see right now. But the question is, I mean, I, I don't really see the, the time and the space now for, for people to come together and, and have rational talks, right? Netanyahu has declared war. The fightings are still going on and and will will likely get worse in the next couple of days um but so i'm I'm personally I'm very pessimistic sir you know we need to take in my mind an historical view and since you are speaking from germany and i had we had this conversation in may nineteen forty five and I would tell you that one day Germany and France have open border and share the same currency. You probably will call the psychiatrist and ask me to be examined. I was just in France two weeks ago and met many German tourists that take their electric bikes and come to the Loire Valley and having great time and everyone is very hospitable and we had some great time there talking to them and exchanging and look, it happened. And there were people because there were people like Monet and Schumann and Adenauer that had the vision of, of, of coexistence. If we'll just sink in our own despair and feel sorry for ourselves, it will become the reality, it's self-fulfilled prophecy. If we try to think outside these terms, and yeah, people can come together even after the worst of atrocities, the worst of, and, and the Second World War is an example of that, then we can build the hope and the belief that it's possible. That was Yossi Merkelberg, Associate Fellow with the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, speaking to me from London. That wraps up our show today. Thanks for listening. The studio texts were Jana Stegemann and Michael Springer. For more World in Progress content, go to dw.com slash worldinprogress or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more current affairs coverage on Israel, please check out dw.com. I'm Sarah Steffen. Bye for now. Bye.